We're continuing to head through um, part of the book of Judges as we go through this time of, of Lent, this time of preparation before uh, we remember Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection on Easter Sunday. We're looking at the book of Judges in particular because of how difficult it is. The book of Judges invites us into a place where we see the messiness of the world and in the messiness of Israel's sin. It invites us into this place where we see how Israel, once again, time after time after time, returns to the rut of idol worship, worshiping something other than who God is. And so we come to Judges chapter 4 today. Uh, if you grab one of those black Bibles, it should be somewhere around page 190. Kids, if you got your student Bibles here, it'd be page somewhere around page 2, 235 or so. We're going to be skipping over the story of Ehud. Uh, we mentioned him last week. Ehud, left-handed man, uh, and he killed uh, King Eglon and gave the, the land peace. He was the judge that gave a land, the land peace. And so here, uh, these words from Judges chapter 4 as we continue. Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hirosheth Hegayim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapido, was leading Israel at the time. She held court underneath the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, the son of Abinom, from the Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course that you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent near the great tree of Zananim, near the Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagiam to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone out ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Higiam. And all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin the king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came in uh, pursuit of uh, Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the uh, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed him. That's where we're going to read, finish our reading. Like I said last week, Cindy, our church secretary, said we're really going to read this, huh? It's not necessarily an easy passage by any means. And I think one of the reasons it's not easy is because we see these words again. We read, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. While Ehud, the the judge, was living, he functioned as almost this restraint to the people. He, he, He functioned in this way that helped the Israelites follow God the way He intended. He he was this, this guide for them that, that kept them on the, the right path of living. Except the problem is, is once that guide, once that, that thing that is, is functioning as a restraint gets it's pulled away, Israel then will go back to its old ways. In the cycle of the judges, it means that they'll go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And most of the time, it'll be worse than the evil that they were doing previously. This passage mirrors an earlier passage in in Judges chapter 2, verse 19, where the judge died and the people returned to corrupt ways. Whenever following the Lord, is dependent on some outside pressure. When that outside pressure goes away, the true character of that individual or individuals will come to the forefront. And here with Israel, we see that their true character is an idolatrous heart. One that is ready to worship other gods. We would have probably hoped, though, that it would be different. That after God had saved His people through Othniel, and after God had saved His people through Ehud, that 
perhaps they would have learned something and they would have instead settled into this ordinary and consistent and faithful life. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And every time we will read that, we'll read that multiple more times going throughout this series, it just means that the people began once again worshiping idols. Idolatry is that, that rut that the Israelites couldn't quite get out of. It's that, that rut, that thing that they always seem to go back to. That, that sin that, that entangled them that they consistently, no matter how many times they were pulled out of it, they went back in that spot. Perhaps, too, that could be the same way sin is in our life. A sin that entangles us might be that, that rut, that thing that somehow we consistently go back to doing even though we really don't want to do that. And even though the, the Israelites are, are being oppressed and even though they are worshiping other gods, they somehow come to their senses enough to, to after 20 years to, to cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord immediately sets to work. He immediately sets to work raising up a deliverer. And here we're introduced to Deborah, a prophet. She was leading Israel at that time. She was the agent at this time by which God was speaking through. She would, she would be the one who would give her judgments to the people's problems, the people's issues. And as she was leading as a prophet, she, she summoned Barak and, and said, Barak, come here, for the Lord has given you Jabin's army, Sisera, Sisera's army, into your hand. Go. She spoke forth this word from the Lord saying that he was going to win the battle, that God was calling him to do that. And the interesting thing about this particular story in Judges is that we see that the judge and the Savior are two separate people. In the other stories with Othniel and Ehud, they were the judges, the ones who were the leader of of Israel, and they would go on to be the military leader of Israel that would go on to be the, the Savior who would save Israel from whoever their oppressor was. But now, it's a little bit different. We have, we have Deborah is the judge, and Barak is the Savior. Barak would be up against some 900 chariots of iron. The interesting thing about that is the chariots of iron are something that was seen as quite an impressive force. Chariots of iron were seen as something that was difficult to, to overcome. And if we look back a few chapters, it was the chariots of iron that are a reason that Judah and Dan, the tribes of Judah and Dan, were not able to progress in uh, in the southwest against the Canaanites. 
And now the Lord is calling Barak to go up against these 900 chariots of iron. And Barak almost seems somewhat hesitant in his response. Certain uh, is asking Deborah to go along. And she says, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. Barak was given this clear order by the prophetess. She said, the Lord is calling you to do this and He's going out before you and and he hesitates and he says, I'm only going to go if you, Deborah, go with me. And therefore, he's he's not going to receive the honor. There's going to be a price to pay because of his hesitance and his unwillingness to go without Deborah. And I wonder if this considering of honor is an invitation for us to consider idolatry in our own hearts. Is honor or an image of ourself something that somehow becomes an idol within our own life? In the 1990s, Canon had a really successful advertisement campaign that uh, starred this guy named Andre Agassi. Does anyone know who this guy is? Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi is this, this he was really the, one of the top tennis players at the time. And the whole ad just showed like a camera taking pictures. And it was Andre Agassi like standing there in suits, sometimes with his shirt off. That's why, you know, we're not showing it here. Uh, but where he's, you know, and then the only thing he says is image is everything. Steve remembered it. Image is everything. In our culture, our image and the image of other people sometimes matters so significantly that we do things to improve our image. If we went to the supermarket, Rebecca DeYoung in her book writes, the supermarket checkout is lined with magazines that are dedicated to the cult of beautiful people whom Americans celebrate, worship, and try to emulate. We have this glittering image of some type of people. It's these sports figures, those songwriters, those song uh, singers. Taylor Swift, we were talking about earlier. Hmm. Maybe, maybe it's something that goes beyond some healthy admiration into this unhealthy position where we try to ourselves craft our own image to receive honor that maybe we're due, but receiving honor that maybe we aren't due. We work within our life to to craft this image in certain ways by giving out the perfect family photos around Christmas, by cleaning out our car before we know we're going to take someone else on a ride, by having our makeup and hair perfectly in place. 
Maybe we try to protect our image by only letting people in our home when we have our nicest and well-fitting clothes on. We desire perhaps to keep up an image of having it all together. I think sometimes that can get the better of us. I can think back actually just a couple weeks ago when I was probably thinking about image subconsciously in my mind. My whole family basically had come down with COVID and so I wasn't going to preach here. So instead I preached uh, from the comfort of my bedroom. But you guys didn't know it was my bedroom because all you saw was this corner, and it was this neat corner. It just had this white desk that had a computer on it, and there wasn't much on it. There was maybe a lamp and a Bible. But what wasn't pictured was all of the other stuff that I had to move off of the dresser that was behind just to get it slightly off frame. What wasn't pictured was Emily and our five kids in the main floor as she's trying to keep them somewhat tame and quiet so they don't mess up dad's sermon and make him have to do it again. What wasn't seen on the screen was the fact that I was inches away from my own bed of which was holding the microphone. What wasn't pictured was the fact that I brought in two production-style lights into the room so I couldn't move anywhere. That's why I didn't move. Just so I could have a good image. What are the areas in our life where we work hard to put on that image? To get it so some people who are our friends or our acquaintances see this much of the frame. Me preaching with this little desk, but not seeing the mess and all of the other things that are going around behind the scenes. I think even though most well-meaning Christians find themselves doing things to help their image, to gain acceptance of others. doesn't even necessarily need to be protecting a perfect image. There's a guy named Augustine, and uh, he wrote a book called Confessions, and in his book called Confessions, he wrote about a time where he chose to change his willingness to do something, to to reduce perhaps his morality in order to gain acceptance with a group of friends. And he says, he shared a story where he was willing to steal pears from a neighboring farmer just to gain acceptance with some friends. To adjust his image, and somehow gain some honor from those friends by doing this activity. He later reflected by saying, I didn't even need the pears. We didn't eat the pears. We just threw them to some pigs. Here we have 
one of the, one of the guys that's seen as a, a foundational person in Christianity and in his writings are continued to be read by people today. And yet, he too would go to certain lengths to craft some type of image in his own life, to receive some type of honor. The, the difficulty when we craft this image and we create things is, is that we begin associating our image and who we are as a person with the opinions of other people. That we are willing to change who we are and what God has called us to be because someone will think something of us. Our desire for acceptance, our desire for honor and crafting an image will cause us to adjust our morality for the sake of personal benefit, so to speak. But really, crafting an image in Barak, Barak not receiving honor is only really part of the story. Because the story continues and it's kind of got this hinge that's in chapter 4, verse 14. Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone out before you? The Lord has gone out before Barak. The Lord is, is the one who is the warrior who is going out ahead of His people. Even when the Israelites are, are in the midst of, of worshiping idols, God is still present and He's still there and He's still desiring to work for the good of His people. And so here He's, he's going ahead to show mercy to His people. And, and though Sisera had this huge tactical advantage, this advantage of 900 chariots of iron, this, this insurmountable advantage, it really meant nothing because the Lord went on before them. For some reason, Sisera didn't think that they were in advantage anymore. He left his chariot. What would, what would make someone leave a tank of that day, essentially? Well, if we, if we cheat a little bit and head to, to chapter 5, there's a, a song about kind of what happened. It tells us that there was a rainstorm that happened in the Kishon River Valley. And you could imagine how these horses were pulling these heavy iron chariots in this flooded and muddy area, and how the, the chariots would begin to be weighed down in the mud and be unable to move, and so Sisera would have to flee on foot. Their whole army getting out of their modern-day tanks, so to speak, so they could battle in a different way. And so the Savior... The Savior Barak, Barak, sorry, did as the Lord commanded and rescued them from their oppressors. And, and Deborah's words came true. That instead of Barak 
killing Sisera and delivering Israelites from Sisera. Instead, it would be a woman who would be doing that very thing. Barak would receive no honor in his saving Israel. It's interesting when we think of a Savior receiving no honor. Jesus wasn't particularly worried about his image with other people. He, he didn't seem to do things purposely to, to grab attention of people. In fact, he, on multiple occasions after healing someone, would go and say, don't tell anyone. Don't say anything to anyone. Keep it a, a secret. It was Jesus then who who didn't seek out an opportunity to craft this glittering image of himself. It was Jesus who actually found himself being dishonored in many instances. He was dishonored in his own hometown. We could think of him being dishonored if we consider the passage in Isaiah 53 that would say he would be pierced for our transgressions and that he would be crushed for our iniquities. It doesn't sound like something someone worthy of honor would experience. Jesus himself was was not honored by being nailed to the cross. It was actually one of the most dishonorable ways to die. And yet, though Jesus was dishonored and did not receive honor in that moment, He did receive honor and glory when it came to Easter and He was risen from the dead. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, talking about the resurrection of the dead. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is, it is God who is working within His people who take the people from these places of dishonor and bring them into places of receiving His glory by way of Christ. We see it in the Old Testament as Israel was not the, the biggest. Uh, they were not the most flashy. They were, they were not the best people, and yet God chose them to be His special possession. We see it in the New Testament as we would read through Matthew and see a, a list of names in Jesus' lineage, and, and we would find people in there that we wouldn't necessarily say are honorable people that have lied people that have committed adultery people that have in a way committed murder 
And, and Jesus Himself would, would go on and, and meet these people who had perhaps no honor. The woman at the well. Zacchaeus in a tree. And yet, the one who is worthy of all honor chooses to die in dishonor. That he may be raised in glory. And that we too may be invited into this place where we don't think about our image. We don't think about doing things for honor because we have been honored by just our being through Christ. Christ found us honorable enough to go to the cross for us to restore our relationship with Him. If there's any type of honor that I think we would want, it would be that one. To, to recognize that Christ saw in you. Christ saw in you the dishonor, the, the sinfulness, the, the, the rut of sin that you'd always get stuck in and yet, and yet wanted to die for you so that you may, in the new kingdom, be, be raised in glory. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You that Christ went to the cross in dishonor. That Jesus Himself would, would go and seek out the people who had lives that were dishonorable. And yet through the, the power of Your grace, You can turn that dishonor into glory. That you can turn that dishonor into something that is wonderful. Your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for how you bring that into our life through the person of Christ. And it is our prayer that we would receive peace in our life. Not striving to craft our image. But striving instead to be made more in the image of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.